0: Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I am joined by Hope Virgo, Sharon White and Suzanne Simarka. Hope Virgo is an award-winning mental health campaigner and has been involved in several campaigns and projects to improve the support eating disorder patients receive. Sharon White OBE is the co-chair of the School Nurses International and the CEO of the School and Public Health Nurses Association where she is a passionate advocate for children, young people and their families. Suzanne Samaka is a mental health campaigner and the founder of the Honesty About Editing campaign, which supports youth mental health against the challenges of low self-esteem and negative body image caused by edited content on social media. Hope Sharon and Suzanne join me today to discuss the school nursing toolkit named Eating Disorders Can Affect Anybody, which aims to provide the latest evidence and research to inform best practice guidance for support- supporting a child young person and their family with an eating disorder. To start with, we ask Hope Virgo what the new eating disorder manifesto entails. So the new eating disorder manifesto is around
1: trying to get the government to make a proper concrete commitment to tackling the epidemic of eating disorders. In the manifesto, we are calling on the government to invest in services to make sure that they can adequately meet the demand of those people struggling. It's about moving away from BMI and making sure that regardless of what weight you are, you can get that support. We're also calling on the government to invest into research. We know with eating disorders that they have the highest mortality rate out of any other psychiatric illness. We know that recovery is really, really difficult. And we also know that there's just not enough research out there to actually inform services and best practice. So we were calling on the government to invest properly into research and to make sure again, that there is a commitment around doing that. With all of this, we need to have a time frame of implementation. We need to have a proper working group invested in to make sure that everyone is getting the right support when they need it
0: why has timely treatment been involved in the manifesto and why is it so important we know that early intervention is extremely important not
1: only does it stop a person living with the illness for an extensive amount of time but it also saves lives We need to be making sure that actually we're having these conversations. We're hoping that not only does the school's toolkit begin to get in there early when people are struggling, but it's about society also getting in there. It's about making sure that we're not shying away from these conversations. As part of our launch um, of the school's toolkit, we're also launching a video with Instagram. And within that, hopefully we're going to be offering a bit of insight in about in how you can have these conversations again not shying away from them listening being patient being direct we talk so much these days about things like suicide and mental health more broadly but yet with eating disorders for some reason we're still not having these conversations we're still lagging behind still fueling a lot of that shame and stigma which is not allowing people to reach out for support so we need as a society to make a commitment to be talking about these things to think really practically about what we can do in our schools in our workplaces and in our communities to make sure people are getting the right support
0: why did you decide to create the eating disorder school kit and are similar projects going to be done for adults and workplaces
1: schools are a really really important place to be talking about eating disorders we live in a society where we've completely normalized eating disorder culture You walk around the playgrounds at school or sit in a canteen and there's kids left, right and center talking about dieting, commenting on what each other are having, managing their calories. I spend a huge amount of time in schools working with young people and pretty much every single child has these calorie counting apps, which is just not normal. It's just not okay that we have created a society where disordered eating is just okay. That's why we are launching this toolkit. We want to get in there early with young people to ensure that people can get the support they need. But we need to make sure that people realise that also adults get affected. For too long, the shame and stigma has stopped adults reaching out. There's this whole narrative that to have an eating disorder, you have to be a child or you'll eventually grow out of having an eating disorder. But more and more research is coming out at the moment showing that people actually develop eating disorders in adulthood. But also, we all know that you don't just grow out of an eating disorder. I've had an eating disorder since I was 12 years old. I'm now 32. And yes, I'm in a very good space in my recovery, but I didn't get this miraculous fix when I turned 18. That's just not how these illnesses work. We don't choose to be that way, but it's just what happens. That's why it's really, really important through the work that we're doing, but also looking broadly, that we're remembering adults in this conversation. As part of the manifesto, we are making sure that actually adults get the same funding. As children get, making sure that that funding is also ring fenced, putting that pressure. And the amount of meetings I've gone to recently at number 10, where I've literally had to be like, don't forget adults, don't forget adults, it still seems like they're being forgotten off the agenda. So we must keep talking about it. We must make sure that actually we're bringing them into these conversations. Whilst we know that prevention and awareness work is so, so important, And it is. It's key to getting society to talk about eating disorders and to change the narrative that we have created around them. And also to fight the shame and stigma that so many people fail. But it doesn't stop there. We need to ensure that the government are being held account to actually tackling this epidemic. We need to be making sure that people are getting the right support in the timely manner No one should be dying of an eating disorder, ever. But in 2022, the fact that this is still happening and it is not a complete and utter public outcry or national scandal is just not okay. We need to do better. That's why, as part of this work, we are launching a manifesto to put more pressure on the government to tackle this. So what can you guys do when you're like trying to support this is to talk about it, to keep raising awareness of eating disorders, to contact your local MPs, to make sure that they're not shying away from these conversations. For too long, the government have hidden behind the global pandemic or blamed social media for causing this increase in eating disorders. But actually, it goes much deeper than all of this. Eating disorders are a very serious mental health issue. And it's time that as a society, we stand up and we treat them like this. I would really, really encourage you after listening to the podcast today to head over to the Dump the Scales campaign where you can find um, example letters um, that you can then forward on to your MPs, asking them what they are doing to to support those people with eating disorders. The only way that we can change this and to make sure the government take this seriously is to make as much noise as possible. You can also see a little bit more about the campaigning work and the toolkit over on my Instagram, which is underscore. And then we spoke
0: to Suzanne and Sharon about the Creating the Eating Disorder Toolkit. Hello, Suzanne and Sharon.
2: Hi, good morning. Hey, Hannah.
0: How are you both
2: doing?
3: Very well. Yeah, thank good, you, I think.
2: Not bad for a grey a Wednesday morning in Yorkshire. <laughs> 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 That's when you know you're a Southerner
3: because the sun's definitely out today. It's a, a day for getting the washing on the line, especially in October. <laughs> I did
0: debate putting my washing out But it's so windy <laughs> that I'm terrified Everything's going to get blown away
3: Yeah, there is that Mine's probably in the
2: tumble dryer
0: oh, I don't have a tumble dryer I'm, I've not got that luxury <laughs> <laughs> and
2: it probably, It'll probably have to go Given the fuel prices. So I'll yeah. enjoy the luxury while I've got it <laughs> Yeah, definitely
0: Um, Well, thank you both so much for joining me today. Um, I'm very excited to discuss the project that you've been working on and perfectly timed that when this episode comes out, it will have all been released. So um, that's really great. So I wondered if you wanted to start um, and we'll kind of I'm just going to shoot the questions at you and you can kind of decide between you who who wants to answer it but what does the new eating Soda manifesto that you've been working on with hope what does that outline?
3: Sharon do you wouldn't take that? Give that, that the... So
2: as, as you've already mentioned hope is a an internationally renowned actually mental health activist and fabulous ambassador um, for children and young people and adults um, mental health and well-being but also an expert by experience um, in terms of eating disorders. And so under her amazing leadership um, and guidance, we have come together to support her campaign. And what we at Safna have specifically been working on is the development of the toolkit you've already alluded to, Hannah. But also one of the unintended but great outputs as well that's happened in that work is a resource for schools because when we pull together the project, the advisory board to the project, um, quite overwhelmed by the number of young people, whether they um, have undergone an eating disorder, in an eating disorder, are in recovery, whether it be their friends or their siblings came forward, as did parents, carers and professionals. And through the work and exploration and experiences so freely and honestly shared by the most amazing human beings, um, we've managed as part of this campaign to produce the Eating Disorders Toolkit and a resource for schools so that we're supporting our education colleagues to support Mm -hmm. children, young people, their friends, their siblings, their families, at the same time as supporting school nurses. And that we've got a shared narrative that were saying the same things, that were on the same page. And and the evidence and research, critically, includes local um, intelligence from the children, the young people, the families, the carers, the siblings. So it may not look very academic in terms of evidence and research, though it is underpinned with evidence and research, obviously. But actually, without wanting to denigrate and use this term, it is from the horse's mouth Mm -hmm. and there's nothing more valuable. I think often when we work with children, young people and indeed adults around mental health issues, we do unto rather than with. Mm -hmm. And certainly in school nursing, we talk about co-production but actually how real that is and how honest, and it's scary, to be honest, to ask children and young people and families what they want, but you can't always deliver on it, but actually really um, drilling down, taking that professional risk, getting into that professional curious conversation is what we've been able to do here. And mm. um, So our contribution to the wider campaign that Hope is leading, um, it's certainly been on the school nurse toolkit and the educational resource. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do
3: you want to say any more about that? Susan? Yeah, I think just to add to that, I, I mean, so I have a, a family member that's gone through a number of years of uh, an eating disorder, and uh, they're not my child, so I'm, I'm a carer rather than a direct parent. Um, and I think what's been really important with this project is, like Sharon says, it's come from the horse's mouth. And they've really taken into account not just lived experience, which is so, so valid, um, but also that of carers, parents, professionals, teachers who, you know, teachers aren't trained to be eating disorder specialists. So when it, it does come up, they're as terrified by it as we are as parents. And, you know, parents and carers, we... Uh, went through an experience that we never expected to go through. And to be honest, when it first started, we were absolutely terrified by it because you realise you know absolutely nothing. Uh, And whether you like it or not, it does still carry a lot of stigma. And as a parent or a carer, it comes with a lot of guilt and a lot of shame. And it shouldn't do, absolutely shouldn't do. Um, And the more we talk about these things and provide resources that are helpful for not just professionals, but like Sharon said, uh, friends or or teachers or parents or anybody that's touched by something that is this complex to understand. Because as a, a person that has had experience of this being in our family, you do feel like completely lost it's such a, a mind-blowing experience and changes everything that you thought you knew it's almost like the ground goes from under you and um, so it's that's what's been really important for me that actually it's taken in a wide uh, range of different values and different uh, understandings and beliefs into into the project mm.
0: yeah I think it's brilliant kind of you know we're definitely moving towards a place where lived experience experiences um, brought into services and stuff like that. But like you say, getting the kind of, you know, the needs and the experience of everybody around them as well, because everybody does play a part. Um, you know, eating disorders don't just kind of affect the person that's struggling with it, it affects everybody around it. Um, and I think I really like that you, you know, you've, gone to teachers and school nurses as well as you know the direct parents or carers um because I think whilst I do you know I'm so glad that you're doing this and I think that the training definitely should be in place for teachers and everybody else it's it's kind of to me it should be something that teachers get but you don't necessarily get parents let's say going along to training about when your child gets an eating disorder um because you don't get training for anything, really, do you when you're a parent? So actually to understand what what everybody needs feels so important. Um, And when you and maybe Suzanne, you can talk about it, kind of what you explained that um, you felt and, and also maybe looking at the wider picture of what other people felt was important. What were the things that came up that people really wanted within the resources for, you know, supporting someone with an eating disorder?
3: So I think The big aspect that needed to be in there was just to reiterate that because a big part of it was for school nurses and how to potentially speak to parents or carers and also take into account there might be siblings in the same school and the effect on them as well because it has a huge effect on them Um, Mm -hmm. and i know as a family we were Extremely defensive when this first came to our family. Um, because we felt like we'd failed. Um, that's mm-hmm. that's the bottom line. And I think anybody that's then talking to parents or carers or anybody involved, you haven't failed. The person hasn't failed. You know, it's nobody's fault, and collaboratively they they can recover from this and it's a case of talking talking is such an undervalued process um whether it be talking to somebody who is a friend or somebody who's a stranger to be honest um but talking and getting it out of your head because what your head tells you whether that be the person suffering or the parent or whoever it be if you're not talking about it it creates loneliness and that loneliness dealing with your own head and your own thoughts is can be such an awful place um but actually if we're all we're all striving for the same goal so if you're all talking to each other and, and being you know mindful of, of everyone's experiences and emotions at a point in time that emotions are hugely raised at this point in time we can all achieve the same goal and that's the
2: the caring for the people that are suffering you're absolutely right Suzanne that that was very clear from the carers and parents and indeed the young people and I said earlier we call it a shared narrative and we call it health literacy and you can badge it whatever you want to but actually uh, we've got something in school nursing when we were are looking at what was needed from school nurses somebody called it um professional reluctance to be outspoken and when we tried to kind of understand that there's a a professional respect that you don't want to upset parents you don't want to upset mm. the child if you talk to school teachers they'll say the same thing how do you begin to broker that really difficult conversation you know how do you become unpopular with that parent How do you incur the wrath of an angry, defensible parent who says, how dare you say my child might have an eating disorder? How do you, as a school nurse, become unpopular by asking the the difficult questions of the young person and then talking to school and then talking to parents, within, obviously within confidential structures? So you're absolutely right, Suzanne, that the main ask from parents and carers and the support networks around children young people was can we just get this out there and how do we do that as well as we possibly can and within the resources there's some cracking um, examples that have come from the experts to help us with those difficult conversations and that's what I mean about when I think some of our externals who might look at it might think oh research evidence-based actually Experts by experience is part of our research and evidence that it, it doesn't fit in an academic framework often, but actually this is the real richness and this is what will make the difference. Mm. So I think we had a quote, and, and I may misquote it me, Suzanne, about a teacher calling a parent to say, I'm a little bit concerned about your daughter or son, or I've noticed she's looking a little bit different. or," And I think one of the parents said that was how it was brokered with them. And the parent was so blinking relieved that school had also spotted the signs yes. spoke to the parent and then facilitated the parent to have that really difficult open conversation with school and um, that must have been really difficult but actually was triggered by that professional confidence of a teacher mm. being professionally curious enough to say actually I'm a little bit concerned about your son or daughter so um I think you're right you're right Suzanne it's, it's invaluable that part of the resources. And I think just to add to that as well
3: I think often as parents and carers we might see what we don't want to see Um we do see it and actually by then uh, like you say somebody in a professional capacity whether that be a teacher or a school nurse to share those concerns in the right way and also then have the support of how to do that helps us as parents because it's it is the last thing you probably want to admit see you might have had concerns but you don't really well from my experience we had no idea what happens next um so you don't really know what it means so i think it's it's helpful for parents and it's helpful for teachers and and all of the school network as well
0: Mm, yeah i think um the idea of um kind of providing that resource on communication that to me stood out something really poignant because i think a lot of the time you know whether it's a parent carer teacher school nurse anybody a lot of the time you mentioned the stigma kind of associated with eating disorders, Suzanne, and I think a lot of the time there is so much stigma that people are almost terrified to say anything, so they don't say anything. And, you know, as you've just explained there, if someone spotted that something might not be quite right, I would say that, you know, they have a a position there to say, you know, how's everything going or whatever. Um, But I wanted to ask you, maybe to be a bit controversial, Um, because it sounds like a a wonderful situation where a school nurse spots something from their training and reaches out to a parent and says, you know, a bit worried and and the parent says, oh yes, same, like, thank you so much. How do you think it should be navigated if, because I can imagine that a lot of parents, you know, because of that stigma, because of that shame, um, often parents thinking that they're being blamed, if a parent was called, you know, and they became quite defensive. I did a podcast a few weeks ago with a teacher and she was, you know, saying, I'm not really sure where my response, well, she knew where her responsibility sat in kind of saying, I'm worried about your child. But, you know, actually, if the parent is um, dismissive of that or kind of says, you know, nothing's wrong, where do you go with that as a professional? Because you're going to want to help, but, you know, what's the line?
2: Yeah, and, and that came up and we have, we've we tried to address that as best we can, Hannah. Mm-hmm. And it's not new for school nurses, this. It's not just about eating disorders. There are many issues that children, young people come to share with us or that the, the teachers refer to us or we get involved in, um, where it might be controversial or, or difficult to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, So school nurses are trained in having those difficult conversations with parents But sometimes, you know, we have to accept that perhaps right now in this place, in this time, it's not the right time for this parent. Now, if we felt the child was any significant risk to harm, but depending on the state they are in, physically, emotionally, mentally, socially, we may have to um, go beyond the parent and perhaps make a referral to social care. Mm. for example. So, if it was loosely couched in safeguarding, if we felt that child was at risk or posed a risk to anybody else, then we would use our um, processes to to do that. However, in this situation and in all situations, we should be working in partnership with parents as much as we possibly can. Mm. So, we would keep trying. We wouldn't just um, three strikes and you're out here we would use all means available to us. So we'd try and have that conversation. If it wasn't received positively, perhaps we'd follow it up in a different medium. So maybe if the parents are accessing our text services, that might be less um, imposing, it might feel less threatening, or we might use snail mail, go back to a letter, because that gives the parent time to reflect and think, um, digest, um, have a... wonder about what might be best um and often you know as as a health professional i think nurses are you know they're still seen as the most trusted workforce by our country but actually um we also can be very threatening to parents particularly when you don't want to hear bad news about your child or it might come as a the hugest shock as suzanne was talking about that she had no idea what was going on so i think As school nurses and and highly trained skilled professionals, we've got a number of things at our disposal that we need to try and need to use. Um, And sometimes, you know, we have to accept there are cases um, all the time where parents refuse to allow us to have that conversation back with the child or don't want any input. And if there are no safeguarding risks, then what we would do is try and work with others that are connected to that child, so support school or youth workers, or friends. So we would do it in a less direct way. So we'd still facilitate the information sharing, the signposting, the advocacy, um, You we'd try and use other means um, to get in that support to the parent. So drip feeding, um, Mm -hmm. some might call it emotional blackmail, but I think professionally it's called using all methods available to us to try and engage and build up that trusting relationship with the parent because the Suzanne has outlined for all kinds of reasons. It might be a past experience. It might be a personal or a, a, a professional experience. It might be just complete and utter shock, mm. denial, a lack of understanding, maybe literacy, you know, are we talking to the parent in a way that they understand in a language they know? Um, are we on the right level? Do we need to change how we are communicating? So there's a whole raft of things, Hannah. So that's a very long-winded response to your your question. But sometimes we do have to accept that parents have a right providing. So once the child is over the age of 12, and I don't want to get embroiled in confidentiality, a child can Mm -hmm. self-consent. But we would only use that if, again, within certain given parameters, we would always aim, and particularly around something like eating disorders, where, it needs full family cooperation Mm -hmm. and full school cooperation and school nurse cooperation we need to at least triangulate our efforts to get the best outcomes for the child or young person
3: i think you made a really good point there as well Sharon, around time um so especially for parents i think um being told something and your reaction might be one way and then you might go home and sit on that for a week and it won't leave your head for that week and how you then deal with it or how you're then approached again by support services or school nurse uh, services will land very differently perhaps to the first time. Um, So it's absolutely around time and uh, where where that person might be in that journey of acceptance, if you like.
2: You're absolutely right, Suzanne. I think you know we talk about uh, working with young people where they're at, and I think we we also need to do that with parents and carers. You know, I've been at the receiving end of a phone call from a health professional about one of my children. I was absolutely incandescent with rage yeah. for all kinds of reasons. But actually, when I had time to reflect. It was more about me having not seen that in my child. It was nothing Mm. to do with the person portraying the information. It was how the heck did I miss that? And all my emotions were around my response to that. And when I tried to unpick it, like you say, Suzanne, when you sit and try and reflect and assimilate what's being said about the child in your care, you know, there are a number of outputs, but for most parents once they've had that time they're very grateful to come back and say okay I hear you what can we do yeah yeah
0: definitely I kind of want to ask what from you know the research that you've been doing and stuff where you sort of saw the school nurses role um because you know it sounds there's a big picture here you know you've got the identification potentially, speaking to the parents, supporting the parents, supporting the child, you know, is that something that is going to be expected or is expected? Or because that feels like a lot to take on. Um, but I, I also think, you know, then maybe signpost into services and stuff, but services are overworked. So have you thought about how it's all going to fit in together to make sure that the person's getting the right support?
2: We have, Hannah, and I will just name the elephant in the room that we've had a disinvestment and lost over 30% of the school nursing workforce in wow. the past five years. And wow. the workforce in nursing is hemorrhaging. And yes. We're seeing the same in school nursing too. But let's just uh, let's clarify a few things. So this toolkit is for all nurses working with school age children in schools. So we have lots of nurses based in independent schools. Then we have what I call the state school nurse, those employed by the local authority, based in community settings and covering a raft of schools. So one school nurse may have three high schools and 10 primary schools to cover. Yes, so that's, she's underpinned by, so a qualified school nurse, which our independent school nursing colleagues may not be, but would be registered nurses. A qualified school nurse is post-grad, Um, and often at master's level now. So she would lead the team, and then under that would sit staff nurses, nursery nurses, healthcare support workers, and admin. So although she'd be the named nurse for all those schools, she wouldn't be expected to do all the work in those schools. So the role of the state school nurse, and it does cross over to our colleagues in independent schools too, is to prevent and protect. Mm -hmm. So the public health role is to do the health education, the health promotion, the prevention through all of that work. So, healthy eating, healthy lifestyles, influencing the food policy at schools, working with the governing body, working with the uh, school meals, uh, looking at vending machines, having, you know, lovely healthy snacks for children available, access to water. So, that would be like the framework of the school nurses' work. Um, and then, as the children progress through school, um, they should be seen at reception, year six, teams and post teams. They should be the four health needs assessments that are offered by state school nurses, where you would uh, assess the child's health in partnership with the parents up to year six and then just the young people after that and work out what's going on. So it would be much more of a reactive service. You've got the preventative, public health role, then you've got the reactive, but it could be at all kinds of levels. It could be if you've got a young person who's worried about their weight, and it might be that they're overweight or underweight. So you'd unpick that with them. For most of them, it would be guidance, advice, support, resources, signposting. For some of them, there'd be alarm bells ringing. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that would require a different response. That would might require referral. It might require um, support around self-esteem, mental health issues, building trust and relationships to allow that young person to tell the full story. And then that would trigger a different response depending on the level. So if it was low level concern, we're trained to a level where we could do those, brief, we call it brief interventions and motivational interviewing in the trade, but we'd work at that lower level of mental health issues, offer support, advise tools, we'd test out some tools to work with the young person. It could be a food diary, for example, uh, it could be um, joining a, a, a some activity or something. Um, so we'd work at that low level. When we get to the medium level, we need to recognise our competencies and our specialist skills, and then we need to be looking to where else we could refer at that point. Now, you're absolutely right, Hannah, that you know some areas in the country for Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services, the CAMS have a waiting list of a year to be assessed. But even when children are assessed now, we've got children waiting for a year to be seen. And we've got a very precarious situation at the moment where school nurses know they should not and will not act beyond their code of professional conduct. However, with their duty of candor as a registered nurse, they cannot abandon those children either. So we've got a huge potential uh, bubbling issue here that is fragile and very concerning. I think for our school nurse colleagues in independent schools, they often have more time to have eyes on those children because they're based, whether they're the residents or not, they're based in the school. And we do have a growing number of schools, state schools employing their own nurses as well. But if we talk about our colleagues in independent schools, so they have opportunity to do be involved much more in the health education, health promotion curriculum. They have much more opportunity to be visible, accessible and confidential. So they can be around on the corridors. They can have a I mean, state school nurses offer regular drop-ins, but you know, they've got an open door in independent schools. I know our school nurse colleagues will complain about the queue, um, but they've got an open door. They often have a medical base where children will go for all kinds of little worries and niggles, but also, you know, real complex issues. So I think for our independent school nursing colleagues, um they have more opportunity in answer to your question, Hannah, to be visible, accessible, and confidential. So the young person can spot you, work out you're a nurse, suss you out, test your trust, build up the confidence, talk to the mate, see what she said. Did she tell the mum? Did she tell school? Did she keep your secret? What did she do, you know, or he do? Were they worth the salt? Will they deliver on the goods? Will she just give me two paracetamol and send me away? Or. Is this is this person really good for me? They can do that much more when you've got a nurse based in school, and in the good old days for state school nursing, you know, back in my day, I was in my schools once a week, if not three times a week. I'd be delivering sex education, I'd be delivering healthy eating, I'd be I'd be involved in the PSHE curriculum. So not only would the children, young people, and families see me in the playground and see me given immunisations, and see me in the dinner hall, they'd see me in the drop-in, and they'd see me in assemblies, they'd see me in the classroom. So I think that's where we need to get back to for state school nursing, and that's the advantage of our nursing colleagues who are based in schools. You're right, Hannah, it is a a ridiculous ask, and I was looking at some uh, numbers before I I joined the, the podcast, and. What school nurses are telling me is that over 80% of the young people that contact them, whether that be through a text messaging service, whether it be through whatever medium that is, over 80% of complex mental health issues. And post-Covid, we have a tsunami of safeguarding issues that are hitting us that a lot of abuse and neglect happened during Covid to, to a lot of children and only now are they feeling able to tell us their stories so we've got huge exponential rise in safeguarding a huge exponential rise in mental health issues and they're manifested in eating disorders anxiety depression self-harm you name it so we are in a very treacherous position i would say as a society um the government would argue they've put a lot of investment into mental health for our children and young people. And and to a point, that is true. And we can go on about the too little, too late if we want. Or we can build on what they're doing and try to influence and shape that according to needs. So you're absolutely right, Hannah. A huge, ask, a huge mountain to climb. However, we will skill up our education colleagues, skill up our school nurses so that we can at least recognize advocate support and refer so my glass is always half full and we're doing a number of strategies around trying to increase the school nursing workforce as you can imagine as a professional organization but also using the uh, new digital offer uh, to um, exploit that and increase our visibility through all methods we can
3: um, on oh, you just mentioned the digital aspects and the visibility and i think you know in an ideal world we we would have a school nurse in every school um three times a week but the reality is that's not going to happen anytime soon if ever again to be honest
2: oh um, i think it might susan i've well, always I, up for I, this I so. I, i'll
3: i'll go with your glass half full um but like you say We have got so much more technology now, and the reality is that young people are, we were talking about it just before the podcast, Sharon, you know, we're uh, technophobes at best, um, but young people aren't, and they're very, very comfortable using a tech service and an online service or speaking to some, they're more comfortable opening up in that sense as it stands, and actually, can we leverage that better to put people, maybe virtually, but in those schools where they need to be, um, and and use that smarter to to be able to try and uh, work against these rising numbers?
2: You're right, Suzanne. One word of caution though, because um, some areas are seeing that as a cost saving exercise for commissioning services. Yeah. yeah. So we can replace school nursing with a bot of mm-hmm. a tech service, which we can't. Mm-hmm. We can never replace the face-to-face. But what we can do is complement, supplement and offer a hybrid model. And you're absolutely right, Suzanne. Um, so Chat Health are the main provider of tech services for school nursing. They grew exponentially during COVID because um, commissioners, providers realised we were not reaching our children young people particularly our most vulnerable so what else could we do there's been a massive growth in chat health and i'm not particularly um, i do support chat health, but there are others out there on the market as well and um, but you're absolutely right suzanne some of the learning if you look at their impact report of young people coming forward particularly young boys coming forward and um, often prefer to come faceless so mm. a text And then if there is an appointment with a school nurse uh, virtually, they often turn the screen off. Mm. There's um, anecdotal evidence beginning to arise, and we're we're hoping to get some funding for research, where some of our most vulnerable would often choose, or most needy, would choose screen off. Mm. Because actually talking to a blank screen rather than a professional is much less intimidating. So Mm. you're absolutely right, Suzanne. There's a lot of, um, we've just completed a, a project with Birmingham University and Oxford Brooks, which was more of a literature review and a survey to better understand the digital offer redesigned for school nursing. What do we need to keep? What do we need to embrace? What worked for the children and young people? What worked for the stakeholders? And what don't we need to do? So we're, we're on a journey with that, but you're right, right now, we've got lots of good evidence emerging. Um, and we know this from our children and young people. You know, that's where they're at. So what, how do we, as school nurses increase our visibility using uh, dig- the digital offer which i think is one of the great things that came out of a global pandemic <laughs> yeah
0: I think the um, the chat service that you said about um, is fantastic because I think a lot of the time, you know, people say, oh, the generation nowadays, they're always on the phones and they only talk to each other through social media or whatever, um, which, yes, you can complain about and say that it's not good. But equally, I think the fact that there's been that grasp and now there's a a service that aligns with that. That's incredible because you can't expect somebody that, you know, if they do only socialize on their phone, they're not gonna go to somebody in person and tell them about all their worries. Um, So I think that, you know, that sounds a brilliant thing to me. Um, I was just wondering in terms of um, like, educating maybe the the children or the students um, because I know personally for me when I um, had my eating disorder I was at uh, secondary school and the person I went to was my PSHE teacher because she was the one that taught me about you know she she mentioned an eating disorder so I thought hmm, maybe she'll know and then she passed me on to the school nurse so it within this is there sort of a plan for for teachers to be trained and
2: to be providing education to the students as well sure I mean we have mentioned we have referenced that and the resources as you know in these days Hannah you can't be prescriptive about what training teachers should have or well, mm-hmm. we have said they need to be trained mm-hmm. I think um it's a very fine line isn't it you know just as i couldn't teach maths should we expect our maths teachers to teach kids about mm. about sex and about eating disorders so there's always that tension but i think as part of the wider children's workforce we have a responsibility to children and young people to know and understand about eating mm. disorders around sexuality around mm. healthy lifestyle so it's a broad brush isn't it and i think the expectations placed on our school school colleagues is huge mm. um however from a safna point of view we're working much closer as a result of COVID with a lot of senior leadership teams a lot of schools um because i think teachers are recognizing much more that if our children are not mentally healthy they will not achieve attend and attain mm. and if we don't fix that bit we might as well not bother and so we're working much closer across the children's workforce that will go for social care, health education, the voluntary sector. But well, particularly from a SAFNA point of view, we're working with many more schools and many more organisations that provide the education to schools, such as TES or Educare or Creative Education or whoever that might be. Because there's been a, a beautiful recognition out of a very sad event that. If our, our children are traumatised, as are we, as as professionals, to whatever degree that might be, whether it be personally, professional, a combination of it all, all of us have been touched by a global pandemic in some mm-hmm. way. But actually, how do we all help make that better? We're in the we're in the same situation. So our our school staff do have an expectation to be trained and skilled, and. One of the things the government has done is fund senior mental health leads in all high schools. So they funded a senior mental health lead. Now, (laughs) that's probably landed on the shoulders of the head of PSHE, who's also the dead teacher for looked after kids, for young carers, for safeguarding. However, that aside, uh, there is funding and some fabulous providers delivering that training to our senior mental health leads in schools so that they can then be the expert Across a high school, and then they can lead on whatever strategies they want to employ in that school. Mm. And then that would be the go to person for teachers. So the senior mental health leaders, I see it, would have responsibility for working out what's in the curriculum around mental health. What do we need to add? What do we need to change? And there is within the resources um, some do's and don'ts. So one of, I think it was one of the parents, might have said, or might have been Hope, that said, A lot of schools will put posters up to say, if you run up these stairs, you'll burn off so many calories. Well, can we not, actually? Can we not put posters up? Because if we want a mentally healthy school culture and a mentally healthy school, that perhaps is not the best for all the Mm -hmm. students. And I don't know how you would have felt, Hannah, if that was glaring you in the face, Mm -hmm. as somebody struggling with eating issues. Actually, can I burn off uh, calories running up and down these stairs 10 times? It might have been a good thing, it might have been a bad thing, but actually it's not a healthy thing. So, yeah, so we've got senior mental health leads. There is talk of uh, funding for a counsellor also to be funded and based in schools. And then we have the rollout of the mental health support teams. So there would be the conduit between school nurses and CAMs and mental health support teams. A key role is training up our education colleagues. So there are structures and funding in place. I mean, I have a whole issue with why we created a mental health support team when actually school nurses are already providing that, but we won't get into that political debate at the moment. However, there are are positive moves afoot. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we've got huge demand outstripping supply at, at the minute, and I'm not terribly sure what the answer is. But as I've said, I feel we're in quite a treacherous place. Mm. So the more we can do together with children, young people, parents, carers, schools, and ourselves, the better out- outcomes and outputs we're going to get, whatever there might be uh, for our children, young people. Mm. I think you, you
3: mentioned a really key point there, Sharon, that um, it's, as I see it, it's not the responsibility of just a school nurse or of just a teacher or the mental health lead or the parents. Everyone's always goes, well, that's the parent's job or teacher's job. Or Actually, it's all of us. We've all got to take responsibility and we've all got to collaboratively work together to support people and the numbers of people like you say yeah, growing numbers of people who need the support and in in my view and, and why i've put myself forward for this project was prevention's better than the cure if we can put things in place that re- help one person then by my view that was well worth my time um, and that's, I think that's the approach we've got to take. It's, it's not a blame game, whether it be teachers, school nurses, government. And it's very easy to, you know, say, well, the government should be doing more, you know, whether they should or shouldn't, isn't the question. I think we've all just got to do what we can and, and work together.
2: I think you're right, Suzanne. And um, when working together, the safeguarding document first came out we had a beautiful framework in it called team around the child and I think it's the most latest uh, political speakers think family but without diminishing that what what we know and, and understand better now is each one of us has got a role to play around that child or young person distinct but also the same And the shared narrative is one of the clear outputs of of these resources. But also, in terms of Think Family, I don't know what your drivers were, Hannah, and I don't know what Suzanne's young person's drivers were for having a eating disorder, but somebody needs to understand what's going on in that household, not a blame situation. So whether it be the school nurse or the teacher who does that assessment or social care or whoever, because often there are other pressures. In the household, but often there are great assets in the mm. household too. So we take an asset-based approach in health. Um, sorry, I'm talking a load of jargon, but I'm trying to make sense of it. So if a school nurse went to was allowed or invited by the parents and carers to your house, for example, Hannah or Suzanne, and sat with the carers and the young person and brokered that very difficult, challenging, emotional conversation to get the cards on the table using all their skills and what's going on in that household you know have we had a bereavement have we had a separation have we had a loss have we had a redundancy have we lost our home and um, has somebody been ill are you a young carer or oh. actually is this out of the blue is this around the young person's self-esteem Is this around access to the internet is this around tiktok and just look at molly's case in the news this week and the dreadful outcome, and obviously um, Arthur as well, and Albert, sorry, as well. But, you know, what is going on for that young person? Recently, I heard from a school nurse where she conducted an electronic health needs assessment for year sixes. The young people completed information around their health in the classroom, with the school nurse in the classroom talking to them, and it inputted it onto an electronic system, and then it was analysed. And out of 22 children in that classroom, we had seven children who created a bulimia club. They were 10 year old. Yes. So I can see, obviously this is a podcast, so other people can't see your reactions. That, that's quite staggering, but it's not unusual. So where are the young people getting the information from? How can we guide them through accessing that information? What is happening at home? It turned out in this group of young children, and these are their words, they were from yummy mummies who spent a lot of time exercising, a lot of time perhaps not eating as healthily as they might, and they were role modelling that to their girls. The girls didn't actually realise what they were doing was wrong. So how, what is the asset in that household? Well, actually, the asset is mum in that household. How do we help mum to recognise her impact on the child, but also... Does mum want to change? She might not, but how, how do we help her? You know, And because mummy is interested in her body image and because she's interested in a healthy lifestyle, whether that be positive or negative, it's still an asset. Does that make sense? So we need to understand what's going on for that child in the context. But you're right, Suzanne, that that, you know, I call it a triangle. It might actually be a diamond or a star, yeah. but whatever it is, it is about prevention, it is about getting back to education, health promotion, health literacy, or whatever jargon is trendy. But also, here's the early spot in the science. Here's what you can do at this lower, lower level, I'm not minimising low level. Um, here's what we can do, here's what we shouldn't do, here's what we could do. And here's what we do if it goes up a little bit further. So what what assets have I got as a teacher, as a school nurse, as a parent, as a carer, as a young person? How do I self-help myself? don't want to self help myself. Okay, how can we help you? So you're absolutely right, Suzanne. This is nobody's one responsibility. It's a shared responsibility. And it's a shared fear as well. I don't know if you remember Jerry saying, so Jerry's our expert school nurse leading on this for us, Hannah, from Safna. And she said in her scope in the she did a word cloud and at the centre of the word cloud from school nurses was terrified. They were terrified as professionals, even though they're highly skilled, highly trained, terrified of having a conversation, terrified of ruining relationships, Mm. terrified of the fallout for the family and the young person, terrified of the fallout from school. So, you know, we're all terrified together. And when you're terrified together, what happens is you reduce the terror.
0: Mm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's brilliant that, they were able to you know do those assessments and stuff but you know that that's scary age 10 oh, to yeah. kind of have that that understanding um but i think it's so important what you said and you know i think this goes back to any sort of treatment in general it is, is that yeah it they say patient centered but you know here I don't know what we would say but it does the, the approach needs to be a patient centered approach because my household could be completely different to let's say my best friends at school sure. um, but my best friends household could then be influencing on me so you really have to get deep into understanding all of that and i think at the moment we've just got an approach within treatment that's very sort of you tick those boxes so we'll give you this but actually you know understanding that and it again this is all fantastic and it's so amazing and it sounds like there's all that awareness there but it takes time it's not something that can just be a quick fix and you know I think that's maybe what I'm taking away from this is that you know, the ideas are so brilliant and everything, but the resources, we just, we need help to get more people, more resources, more time, more funding. Um, and that's why I'm so grateful for, for all of your work on this manifesto to to really, you know, outline all of that, because it you really need everybody's experience to come together to say this is actually what's going on because you know the government have a thousand and one things to deal with which you know must be a difficult thing but i think if you can give that, them that information and say this is what's going on like this is why we need the help um it's incredible that you've been able to put this together
2: yeah there is a good amount of interest in the parliamentary launch isn't the suzanne the yeah. numbers are going up there is a good mm-hmm. amount of interest from mps and hope has been amazing at working at that policy level and bringing those people together. And I think we've got some potential change makers in the room and some that are very vested in the work already, that they've worked with Hope for a long time, whether that's because of personal reasons, professional reasons, or a combination of of both, or come from the constituents, who knows. But um, that's what's very exciting um, about the parliamentary launch. And we've got good media interest as well, which is fantastic. And I did get a sneak preview of a video that's part of the campaign as well. It is powerful and it's got some very high profile um, celebrities, for want of a better word, but also sports people um, who are right behind this manifesto and campaign either because of personal um, or, or and professional reasons. And I think that gives that very clear messaging as part of the wider manifesto, but also to children, young people who may be struggling to find their voice and tell their story. That actually, if she's on there and she's saying this, that's pretty, that's okay. That's Okay. So yeah, it's not going to be without its challenges, Hannah, but I do think um, we're very positive and, you know, we can't change the world. It is treacherous for our young people at the minute, but if we pool our resources, there's always just a little bit more that can be given. But, you know, it it, there's no simple answer. But this will help us.
0: I think it's amazing that you've um, got such a backing. That sounds brilliant. I was just, when you said there about celebrities and stuff, I remember distinctly um, when I was younger, Demi Lovato spoke about her eating disorder. And that, that gave me the confidence to go and say to my mum, you know, I I, I think that there's an issue and she was you know thinking there was an issue as well but yeah actually to hear somebody else say it you think wow I can you know I can maybe actually do this and also you know social media is something that our children and young people use so much so getting it on social media and you know putting it on a, in a, on a platform that they will be able to access, um, really. I'm not sure how much help. I'm
2: allowed to say, but Hope is working with one of the major social media platforms and the videos being produced to, in partnership with them. Wow. Um, so she's, yeah, recognising where our young people access most of their information. We're trying to balance that. Um, and Hope has done an amazing job in negotiation with one of the major social media platforms. Um so hopefully there'll be a, a massive ripple effect from that. I don't know if you remember, uh, you might be too young, uh, but Jade Goody that died from cervical cancer. Yeah. And we were just launching the HPV vaccination programme. And I've spent a lot of time, I've had a lot of national leaders in this country working out workforce and systems and processes based on usual uptake of immunisations. And it went up 75%. when wow. she died. That is the impact that we can have with somebody that young people and children respect and know. So whilst it's not the panacea, and you've got to be careful what you ask for, because that sent us all into a tiz of how we were going to deliver on this. But, you know, so we may open up another can of worms, but let's get the dialogue going.
3: Yeah. And that's a really key thing, I think. The more we talk about it, the more... Uh, schools talk about it, parents talk about it, children, young people, children talk about it, celebrities, that's what removes the stigma and makes it easier for everyone involved.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing I've definitely noticed, and maybe I was being naive in a a little cave, but it's just the amount of people that are touched by eating disorders. You know, I think when I, I was um, poorly with mine like 10 11 years ago and it, it wasn't something that was you know not many people spoke about but now if you mention the word someone's like, oh yeah I, I know someone or what have you yeah, um, true. yeah so the fact that um you know so many people are getting involved I'm not surprised um you know sadly I'm not surprised but also I think it's you know it's a really good move forward for so many people to be coming and talking about their experiences.
3: And I think um, just to add to that actually I mean myself and my partner we both work for a bank so we're not in social change or teaching mm-hmm. or nursing or anything like that we're in the commercial world and my partner quite often will talk about it now because you've we've had five years or so coming mm-hmm. to terms with the experience um, and he's Sadly, not amazed, but still slightly amazed that how many people will say to him, oh, yeah, my daughter, yeah. son, whoever it be, when it comes up in conversation. And then he goes and sees clients or talks to people and they say, yeah, they've they've been suffering with. And he'll always say it's amazing how many people are affected by it, but nobody talks about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's hopefully what we can combat. Yeah, yeah, definitely.
0: And I do think as well, um, you know, obviously the the work you're doing in schools is absolutely amazing. I think the workplace is also a place that needs to be um, worked on in terms of speaking more openly about this sort of thing, because, um, you know, I had to take time off work for it and it was... It was it was horrible like I didn't want to tell anybody and that's as somebody that is so public on social media doing this podcast I thought if, if I can't and I am so articulate with you know saying it now because I say it every week on this podcast what is everybody else going through but workplace almost breeds the diet culture I think worse than anywhere else in society um so you know you mentioned that you work in a bank but I think equally that's such an important place still to be having these conversations and to be making sure the support's in place for people because I think a school you know you would hope that you can go to school nurse and get help a workplace I don't really know who you would go to.
3: I mean funny enough you mentioned it and it's something I was going to speak to Sharon about so this is uh, something I haven't spoken to yet about Sharon but um, we have in, in my company uh, Working Families Network and that talks about all sorts of things and I've when I started the honesty about editing campaign and I did a talk there about the campaign and again I got emails from parents saying my son daughter's suffering um you know and again it's something where those parents feel they haven't got anywhere to go Mm -hmm. um so the toolkit uh, not the school, not the nurses' toolkit, but the uh, toolkit that we've made for teachers and other people. Is that something we can share with corporates if they have got a family network, something like that? Because actually it is a resource where... It can be helpful
2: or at least help signpost the right resources and so on. I can't see why not, Suzanne, because we're trying to reach as many people as possible. And <laughs> it's going to be posted um, on the SAFNA website. And all oh, we're going to ask people is just to uh, complete a little bit of demographic, confidential information and then do a bit of evaluation for us. So there's going to be free access. Um, and if it touches children, young people and families and schools, then absolutely. um yeah. And I know Hope's got a number of ideas for building on this work to reach into more into the adult population, Hannah, as well. Brilliant. And I also know that Hope does a lot of training with mm-hmm. organisations in the commercial sector. And she does lunch and learns with this very large social media uh, provider as well for their staff. So she already oh. does. She does a lot of training and education in schools, colleges, universities with children and people families. And staff but also she does work in in the commercial industry mm. um so it would be worth a conversation with her to see um where where that's accessible or whether how you contact and find out about it but yes suzanne um from my point of view and i don't think hope would object at all the the more we push the resource out promote it advertise it and hannah thank you for doing this um podcast to support that then the better yeah
0: no, It's it's honestly my pleasure. Um, when when Suzanne emailed me, I really wanted to be able to kind of give you this platform and, and share it and get involved in any way I can because I think it's such important work. Um, obviously, today in the future when this is released will be sort of the day that the manifesto um, is also released. So, is there somewhere that people can keep updated with it um, or, you know, follow it? Is it best to just follow you guys on social media or how can they do that?
2: Yeah, sure. I think uh, Hope's got a bit of a comms campaign going, so probably contact Hope. But we're part of that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're we're um, so we're on all social media platforms, but Twitter is our main one. So okay. I'm at Safna Sharon OBE. and the reason the OBE's on the end is yes, I did get an OBE. But actually, if you Google the other at Sapna Sharon, you get something completely different, which we don't want people to access. So at Sapna Sharon OBE um, or at Sapna Team Um, will be part of that comms. um, But Hope has got a whole comms strategy that she'll be able to tell you about.
0: I'm definitely going to have to Google what Sapna Sharon OBE comes up with.
2: uh... No, 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 no. (laughs)
0: Maybe I won't then. <laughs> no,
2: Sapphire shower and OBE is okay. It's the oh, one without, okay. It's the one without the OBE on the end.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I'm sure I can just sense everybody
2: googling that now. Um, <laughs> but thank you both so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And to, um, us. to thank speak to very you. very much, Hannah. Thank you for being open and honest as well, Hannah, around your own experiences. It, um, it really reaffirms what you're doing, particularly when you're weary with deadlines. Mm-hmm. So thank you for rebooting me again. no worries thank you
0: if you enjoyed listening today you won't want to miss next week's episode so be sure to subscribe eating disorders are crippling illnesses but with the right support they can be recovered from we really hope you enjoyed this episode but if you require more support right now please look into charities such as first steps and beat for support or talk to someone you trust